0: Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen.
1: So as we come testifying of him, calling ourselves Christians, he's saying that, that if we're not the real thing, or if we play the hypocrite, if our words are true but our actions don't connect and, and don't fit, then then he says they take our, our, our testimony and it is thrown out like salt and just trampled under the feet of men. And that's exactly what happens.
0: In today's broadcast, we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, Count the Cost. We're finishing up Luke chapter 14, and we'll begin in verse 16. The remainder of chapter 14 takes us through the parable of the Great Supper, what it means to leave all and follow Christ, and the value of salt that's lost its taste. So let's listen in
1: in order to understand his reaction, because it's gonna be, you know, not all that happy when people begin to beg out, but, but we need to have a little bit of historical background. It is helpful to know that this isn't just like a dinner on the block where, you know, you're making a bunch of spaghetti and you tell your neighbors, hey, if you're not doing anything, drop by. This is a formal invitation to a feast that would require a lot of work and preparation. And, and, and when you understand that, then it makes a little more sense what takes place here. It would be, again, like a wedding feast. You know, if you're invited to a wedding that you're supposed to RSVP. Do you know that? Uh, If you don't, now you know. And and so from this point on, accountable. But but you're supposed to let them know you're coming. And if you say you're coming, you're supposed to show up. Why? Because they provide for you. They prepare for you. And that's the picture of, of what's taking place here. The invitations go out. The RSVPs come back and they're like, hey, we'll be there. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Now, when the time comes, because there's no way to text them or email them or call them and say, hey, dinner's almost ready. It would have been days of preparation. We just celebrated Thanksgiving. I don't know what it was like at your house, but I was tormented for three days as pan baked pies and did all this stuff. And I'm like, I got to have, no, no, that's for th- Thanksgiving. I was like, it's Tuesday, Thanksgiving's Thursday. And, and so three days of preparation for, well, it wasn't just a one day meal though, was it? And, and the point is lots of prep leading up to the meal. Well, now the day comes and, and the servants sent out And it says, he went to those who were invited saying, come for now, all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. Now, if you take yourself away from the table that Jesus is at, as he tells these stories, relates these parables, then you really miss something. Because what he's doing is is he's talking to the people who invited him and he's saying, you know, I'm going to have a feast and the invitations are out, and you guys are are, are thinking you've said yes, but I want to tell you what happens when that day comes, and you actually realize your yes isn't yes, and well, here's the deal. They began to make excuses. The first says, I bought a piece of ground. I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but would anyone here Buy a piece of land without ever seeing it? I mean, wouldn't you want to know, is this a swamp or is this a desert or who buys anything without having an ID? He's like, well, I I, I bought some land and you know, I got to go check it out. Won't it be there tomorrow? And, and so when it says, I ask you to have me excused, all he's doing is making an excuse. Another says, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused now. Again, would you buy? Uh, these are working animals, oxen. Would you buy them and then hope they were going to work out? No, it's just another lame excuse. And then he says, the third, still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now, this is the lamest of all. Why? <laughs> uh, I'm sure that, that you know, well, you should be aware. They didn't have to fight in the army. They didn't have to work. There was a season, some say as, as long as a year. Where, where a young Jewish male, having gotten married, just got to hang out with his bride. Usually that produced the child. And, uh, you know, but, but anyway, the bottom line is he's making an excuse. He's been invited to a feast. He's sent his RSVP. He says, I'll be there. Now the word comes in. He's like, no, I just, I got married. It's not going to work out. I'm sure that, that she'd be happy to go and feast. And, but but the, the real issue is, that that in that culture, this was much more serious than it sounds to us. In ours, we make plans and we break plans. Of course, Jesus does tell us, "Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Be a man or a woman of your word. Be someone that people can depend on." But but again, in our culture, we make plans and we're like, "Hey, it's not going to work out. Let's just do it another time." And we're kind of used to that. In the in in the Oriental or Arab or or, or these cultures. I mean, you could actually start a tribal war by refusing to show up at a feast that you had already told the people you would be at. And, and, and so it's a very serious situation. Well, the servant came and reported these things. Verse 21, to the master, the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here. Before we read it, check it out. He's angry, why? Because these guys said, hey, we will be there. But the reality is they have no intention of showing. He says, go and find the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Remember, he's still at the table after. This is the same group of people, he says. And I can't help but picture him saying, when you have a feast, don't invite your friends or your family. Or, I mean, that's who's all around them. And he's saying, this is who... I want you to invite. And now we see this is who the Lord invites. The poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And the servant said, Master, it's done as you've commanded and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. God's heart is that, that we'd all celebrate with him, that we'd all fellowship with him, not his will as we saw last time. Any parish but all come to repentance, that all be a part of the, the feast and fellowship that he's prepared for us. And then he says, verse 24, I say to you, none of these men, or those men, excuse me, who were invited shall taste my supper. He's saying none of those first invited. He's just talking about the religious leaders, the very people and those they represented in the broader scheme of things. None of them are going to be tasting his supper, none of them are going to be a part of that glorious feast that we are going to be sharing in. Well, in verses 25 through 33, then the latter part of all this, we have a series of age abiding principles and they challenge us to count the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. And if you don't understand the word disciple, it doesn't mean merely student though every disciple is to be a student of the one they're following. It actually means follower. So someone who's learning from and following after, someone worth learning from and following after, an imitator and ultimately a representative of that one. So Jesus is going to say it's important to count the cost of discipleship. Before we look at it, consider this. Those guys should have counted the cost of trying to take advantage of and work and manipulate Jesus, of trying to trap and ensnare him. Even his enemies would be wise to count the cost. But we who call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus, well, he's saying we need to count the cost. A great multitude went went with him. So he's left the house. He's walking the road. A crowd's following. And it says he turned and said to them, if anyone Comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I mentioned that he has some things to say in here that are absolutely, you know, mind boggling. This is certainly one of them. Because we know we've already been instructed to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're supposed to love our neighbor. We're supposed to husbands love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Children are to love and honor their parents. We're to love our enemies and to pray for and do good. And, and we're to love those who abuse and, and, and misuse us. So here he comes and he says, no, nah, here's, here's what you're gonna need to do. You're gonna need to hate your father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters and your own life. And if you're able to say, well, I, yeah, I'm, I'm there. I got that, I got that. Now we have another problem. But what could he possibly mean by all of this? What is he actually trying to say? I believe what he's saying is that our love for him, our commitment to him has to be so great that that anything that would compare to it would look like the opposite of it. You have to know the truth is, if you really love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, you will love your parents, your wife, your husband, your, your friends, your family better. It's not going to make you less of a lover of mankind that you are a true lover of God. No, his love will be shed abroad in our hearts. We will be distributing what we receive from him, not just love, but mercy and, and grace and forgiveness, all those things daily. So I think he's just saying when people look at the love you have for me, the commitment you've made to me, everything else has to pale in comparison. And and, and comparison, it could look like hatred it's hyperbole certainly but but there is something else most of them those who were Jewish and that would be the majority of them who came to faith in Christ would be disowned by their own family now he's not saying I want you to hate your family for that but he's saying you're going to have to make a decision if you love your family more than you love me if you love your inheritance more than you love me If you love the social network that that you find in the synagogue, because to come to Christ means you'd be put out of the synagogue, you would be separated from family, you'd be separated from your, your social network, it would just be you and Jesus and other believers in Jesus. And he's saying, if that doesn't work for you, you won't be able to come after me. You won't survive following after me. You cannot be my disciple But he doesn't just mention the difference in relationships, and that's what that first part has to do with. His relationship, our relationship with him, has to be primary. But he also mentions that, that well, we need to, you know, hate our own life. What can he mean by that? Well, he could just mean our own desires, our ambitions, our plans. It could be, you know, just saying whatever you thought you were going to be or do or accomplish, you're going to have to put that away. You're going to have to, to love me so much that that looks like hatred, that you have no interest in those things. Paul said that, didn't he? He said, all I was, all I accomplished, all I could be. He says, I just count it all dung. That I could gain Christ. I, I, I don't even see it as anything of value. He is all I value. But he could actually mean you're going to have to hate your life literally. And, and, and the idea again, in the first century, multitudes were martyred because of their faith in Christ Jesus. And in the first century, if you were unwilling to die for Jesus, you'd find yourself unable to live for Jesus. And I think that that's going to repeat itself in the 21st century. I honestly believe that the kind of persecution the church experienced in the first century will be repeated in the 21st. And by the way, if you're unaware, in the 20th century, more people were martyred for their faith in Christ than in all of the centuries from Christ's own death all the way up to the 20th century. And and the only reason most of us are unaware of that or kind of shocked or questioning, well, could that really be? Do some research. You'll find the facts bear it out. The reality is is we hear about ethnic cleansing or we hear about tribal warfare or we hear about this or that and they don't report it like, okay, this group of religious zealots are wiping out Christians here or destroying the homes unless you're getting newsletters from Christian organizations that are tracking these kinds of things that the the mainstream media never reports it for what it actually is. And, And so the reality is Jesus is saying first century at least You're going to have to be willing to be, you know, leave behind everyone and everything if you're going to truly be my disciple. And you're going to have to be willing to lay down your life if necessary, if you're truly going to be my disciple. Then in verse 27, he says, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, because the cross means something completely different to us than it did to them. It's hard to get in their head. You see, we, we, we put up crosses and, and we wear them and we sing about the cross and all those things and, and all that's fine because of the days in which we're living. When we think of the cross, we think of the one who laid down his life on the cross, who bled and suffered and died for our sins on a cross. But when he tells them, remember, He hasn't gone to the cross yet. And though he's told them he's gonna, they're always like thinking he has to mean this figuratively. I mean, they can't put together how he could go to the cross and why would he go to a cross and and still rule and reign? And so the cross for them, it was a means of torturous, horrific, painful, shameful crucifixion. And by the way, there was a picture that they would have all fully understood that that when you rebelled against Rome, Rome's thing was hey if you're a murderer in the, the Roman Empire, if you're a kidnapper in the Roman Empire, if you're a rapist in the Roman Empire, I mean they had strict laws and the penalty for those crimes was, well, it, it was it was a capital uh, penalty, you see. You would give your life. And, and, and now, of course, if you're a Roman citizen, they dealt with you a little different because, you know, this is something they reserve for others. But the point is this, that, that the cross, well, it, it was a testimony, if you were bearing a cross, that first of all, you were admitting your guilt. You were saying, I deserve to bear this cross. You were also demonstrating your submission to, to the authority that you had rebelled against in the first place and breaking the laws of the land. So bearing your cross was a a symbol of shame. It was a symbol of of confession. It was a symbol of submission. It would have meant all that to them, but it would have never crossed their minds that it would be some glorious image in our minds. So when he says, if you won't bear your cross to come after me, you cannot be my disciple. In other words, you're gonna have to, to, to let people think the worst of you in order to accomplish what I'm sending you forth to do. They're gonna say you're, you're guilty and accuse you of things you haven't even done. You're just gonna have to take up your cross and say, well, I'm here to tell you about Jesus. And, and they're gonna assume the worst about you because that's what you know, the cross represented. And he's saying, if you're not willing to go there to do that, you cannot be his disciple. For which of you, he says, and he has a couple interesting illustrations before he gets to his conclusion, which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost? Rather, he has enough to finish it, lest after he laid the foundation, he's not able to finish. All who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. I don't know if you've seen it, it's in Dubai. It is the tallest building in the world. If you get a chance, gotta check it out because it is a building so tall that if if this were the height of it, well, y- you can go up the first two layers, that's how tall the Empire State Building is. And then you go all the way up to here to get to the top. Now these guys began to build during a time of great economic boom. And they actually had enough money to complete the project. And if you're wondering, well, how does it apply? Well, here's how it applies. Now in the time of struggle financially, and they're their country is going under financially. They don't have any way to get people to occupy the building. So what good is the largest, tallest, biggest building in the world that says what? We're great. We're amazing. We're something. The very thing he starts in this, this chapter to warn us about and then to say we're fools because we can't even rent this thing out. There's no way for us to even make the payments on it. And, and so he's saying, what kind of person does that? the kind of people that he was talking to there and and wanted to deal with here. And then he says, uh, what king is going to make war against another doesn't sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation asking conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Well, the second illustration has to do with a warfare. And what he's saying is if you're going to war, you better make sure you at least have the potential to win the war. Now, now let me bring this home for some practical application. We are involved in the most wonderful radical building project ever. And if you're thinking, whoa, I didn't even know we were building. We are. We are building the building made without hands. We are authorized to take the message that Jesus says he'll use to build his church, that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. The Christ, that means he's the savior, mankind's only hope. And so as we preach that simple message, he is the Christ Christ. That that he is the son of the living God and people come to faith in him. We are adding to the church, the real church, not the buildings the church meets in, but this organic building that Jesus builds upon the declaration of who he is and what that means. The warfare he mentions challenges us because, listen, if you're not a believer in Jesus, the Bible says you are an enemy of God. And if you're like, well, no, I'm a religious person and I believe in this or I believe in that or, or I have this affiliation or he's saying you're with me or against me. You believe in me or you don't. And, and the scripture tells us clearly that prior to coming to Christ, we were at enmity with God. Now, here's why this is so important, especially if you haven't settled on Jesus as Lord and Savior. You need to figure out, are you able to fight against God and succeed? Can you war against the one who made all things and sustains all things with his own power and hope to succeed? Listen, the only way to win a war or a battle with God is demonstrated for us when Jacob wrestles with God. What happens at the end of the wrestling match? And it went on all night, which uh, Jacob's a tough character. But at the end of all of that, Jacob finally says, uncle, I give you win. You know, don't leave here without blessing me. He cries, and God does bless him. He tra- changes his name from Jacob to Israel. The only way you can win with God, if you're battling against or wrestling with, is to give in and say, "You know what? You're stronger. You're you're you're, you're holy. You're you're righteous. You're you're right. And I'm none of those things. But but Lord, I, I give in. I yield. I, I you win." And once you submit to him, once you deny yourself and take up your cross and confess you're a sinner and you're no longer at odds with or, or fighting against the one you rebelled against, everything begins to change. The Lord begins to transform you so, so that you become all he intended you to be. Well, finally, he says, salt is good. You should know that. You got to have water. You have to have salt. You're not going to live without either. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's saltless salt. That, that's what he's talking about. And what a bizarre picture. It would be like, you know, uh, low fat lard. It, it just doesn't exist. You see saltless salt is worthless salt. And he's saying if the salt isn't salty, how do you, you, you salt it? How do you season it? It is neither fit for the land or the dunghill, but men throw it out. You who has ears to hear, let him hear. In that culture, salt was used as a preservative, as an antiseptic, as a soil builder, as a spice. It was used in sacrificial offerings, in covenants, in dedications. Salt was so important. There was a saying, the guy's not worth his salt. And so Jesus tells us, we're the salt of the earth. And then he says, well, so important to, to put this one together as we conclude that as we... Come bearing our cross as we come testifying of him, calling ourselves Christians, he's saying that, that if we're not the real thing, or if we play the hypocrite, if our words are true but our actions don't connect and, and don't fit, then then he says they take our, our, our testimony and it is thrown out like salt and just trampled under the feet of. Of men. And that's exactly what happens. The real tragedy of any hypocrisy in the people of God is that people don't just write us off. Some of them write him off. Some of them disregard us and disregard the Lord. So, so he's saying, hey, you are the salt of the earth. And everything he's had to say here, it points us forward. We see him at a feast and talking about another feast and yet another feast. But ultimately, we have already been invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. We will be clothed appropriately in his righteousness. He will gird himself and serve us. We'll be worshiping and blessing and honoring him. But but the question is, it's is have you understood that you're invited and in? and have you reciprocated? Because if I understand this chapter, and I think I do, there are a lot of people who said, Hey, I'll be there, but when the time comes, they're gonna make excuses and say, No, I'm not I've got other things going on. I'm not really about that or or yeah, I know I said that, but just make my excuses for me. Listen, you want to be at the married supper of the Lamb. You want to be a part of all that. The trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ rise first. We who are alive and remain caught up with them, caught up together in, in the air. We head to the Father's house where he's been preparing a place for us. We feast in fellowship with him. When he returns to the earth, we return with him. But thus we shall forever be with the Lord. You want to make sure that's your
0: reality not that i would ever want to but how exactly do i lose my saltiness well pastor sam referred to how hypocrisy in the life of a christian can do exactly that but there's another way that i would like you to consider ephesians 2:10 tells us that we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them Now when we ignore the works that the Lord has for us to do, and we only focus on our worldly concerns, it becomes pretty difficult to carry out the works that he has for us. Now I'm sure there are many who appreciate our contributions to the world, and to our families, and to our financial security, etc. But how are those things really advancing the kingdom? We need to ask that question, because a person all wrapped up in the things of the world is not going to be very salty when it comes to the things of the kingdom. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam.